Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Audra Simons. Audra. Hey, Rachel. How you doing? Hi. I'm well. I'm well. I just took a few days off last week to spend with my mom, and we ate our way around Houston. I oh, highly sorry. recommend it for anybody that's looking for new things to try. <laughs> I think I think that's just kind of a bit of pre-training for Christmas. So you're exactly. doing a bit of stomach stretching just that's to right. get yourself ready. Got a pregame, got a pregame for the big day. Always, absolutely, always. <laughs> well, I'm excited. We're getting into some of my favorite topics here uh, today. Uh, happy to welcome to the podcast, Leonard Bailey. He is head of computer crime and intellectual property sections, cybersecurity unit and special counsel for national security within the Department of Justice Criminal Division. Uh, he's been on the cyber front lines for many, many years. And uh, among his many achievements, I am most undoubtedly at awe of is his work on cybersecurity policy, which we know is, is so much fun and, and no small feat. So Leonard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thank you, Audra. Excellent. Leonard, what I want to know is how you actually fit that title onto a business card. <laughs> I, I don't. It actually wraps around the back of the card. Uh, so. Excellent. So to kick off the podcast, I think it would be really interesting for um, our listeners to hear kind of an overview of kind of the government and then how the cybersecurity and Department of Justice fit into it. Like, untangle the web or give us the lay of the land. Yes. <laughs> sure. And thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so, I I mean, cybersecurity is such an interesting issue because it's so complex and sprawling. And I think it's often difficult to kind of untangle exactly how the government works in this space. So um, I mean, to start there, I would say that really the government has essentially four tasks that it tries to accomplish in cybersecurity. The first I would say is on the front end of, 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 of cyber, trying to make sure there's secure and resilient equipment and hardware. And that's something that you know goes to standard setting and something that you know uh, agencies like the National Institute uh, of yes. Standards Technology and NIST and Commerce, right. along with um, CISA, you know, they also work in that space where critical infrastructure is involved. Um, so, so you have that. And then I'm going to jump all the way to the, the tail end of, of kind of dealing with the cyber incident. And that's sort of recovery, reconstitution, um, restoration of services, getting a, an infected organization back on its feet. And that really is, is CISA's kind of wheelhouse. And sandwich in the middle is, is where like DOJ tends to play. And so I, I would put the other two tasks as one, prevention of cybersecurity incidents. Uh, and you know that would include things that we're gonna talk about, information sharing efforts, uh, along with the department's deterrence efforts uh, you know, in enforcement and prosecution. Um, and so there's, there's, there's that. And then you have the fourth thing, which is incident response, which is sort of the real time reaction to a cyber incident. And again, that's very much in, in our wheelhouse with the FBI and, and prosecutors working. So that's sort of that kind of a lay down for the general government uh, activities. And you see that kind of captured in the National Cyber 
security strategy that was released in, in March of, of this year by the Office of the Cyber uh, Security uh, National Director. So can we double click on that and kind of go into like, how are the issues related to cybersecurity distributed across the Department of Justice? And what kind of responsibilities are associated with each division? Perfect. So, <laughs> well, so I, I, I'm going to go with the nagging, nagging number four again because I think that there are really, you know, when you look at what the department is best known for, we, you know, enforcement activities, investigation, and prosecution. Um, there are really kind of four components who are principally engaged in those activities at the department, um, you know, and a, with a nexus to cyber. The first I'll mention is actually the U.S. Attorney's offices. So across the country, there are 94 local federal prosecutors' office who are responsible for. There are frontline prosecutors in all criminal matters. Um, now, in those offices, there are things called chip prosecutors, uh, computer hacking, intellectual property prosecutors, and they belong to a network of 300 or so prosecutors across the country who. The section I come from, uh, the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property or section or, or CSIPs at in the Criminal Division, uh, both supports, trains, and and prosecutes cases alongside of. So um, my office exists largely to deal with things like, um, well, we support the chip network, we prosecute, uh, deter, disrupt uh, computer crime. And we provide technical and legal support to agents and prosecutors, state level, some international, um, wherever is needed. So um, a couple more things about my, my section. Um, in 2015, we started the unit that I, I had, the cybersecurity unit, uh, because after seeing that we were get, gathering some sort of expertise in you know, computer crime and uh, had opportunities to, to to maybe leverage that in ways we decided to try to take that knowledge and channel it into the prevention of of crime so uh what my unit does is we do a tremendous amount of outreach to the private sector um, on a variety of issues including information sharing uh, but also on issues like uh, we were one of the very first um, government agencies to come out in support of vulnerability disclosure programs so in 2017 uh, we produced a document, a white paper on standing up a program for VDP uh, for online systems. Um, we produce white papers. We produce one on, for example, Intel gathering on the dark web, uh, trying to identify sort of red lines for trying to gather intelligence while dealing with unsavory people on the net. Um, and we have done extensive work with the computer security research community, the white hat hackers. Uh, in fact, we, that's been a good chunk of work I've done. Um, in the area of sort of good faith security research, uh, we've come out multiple times in support of expanding that exception under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, and in uh, 20, let's see, was that May 2022, we changed our charging policy um, to reflect the importance of computer security research um, by saying that prosecutors should decline prosecution if available evidence shows that defendant's conduct consisted of and the defendant intended good faith security research. Um, okay, so that's 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 CSIPS, that's in the criminal division. In addition to us though, there is the national security division. And uh, they are increasingly engaged in cyber. I actually worked at the 
in the front office of the National Security Division a decade ago uh, on cyber policy issues. So there's also the National Security Division in the department, um, and they are increasingly engaged in, in cyber. I, I worked there 10 years ago as a, a senior counselor for the Assistant Attorney General focused on cyber policy, but but they have since really weighed into the prosecution of, of, of cyber threat actors. Um, and their, their remit is really cyber threat actors who are nation state actors or their proxies. Um, they also though have opportunities to do operational activity with the intelligence community and with other agencies working on things like export control and laws around that, that sometimes do also butt into, into cyber issues. Um, and now the, the third, uh, I'm sorry, fourth component of the department I'll mention is also uh, the FBI, of course, right. and of their no, famously the FBI. Right. Um, now they have a cyber cyber division that is uh, the division that we in CSIPS interface with with mostly, but they also have other components of the FBI that are engaged in what are cybersecurity activities, including their counterintelligence division and their criminal investigative division, um, you know, depending on the issues. And with the FBI's footprint, 56 field offices across the country, 400 satellite offices, 23 foreign liaison posts, um, their footprint is incredibly large and that is vital in dealing with cyber issues. Absolutely. Maybe I'll, I'll also yeah. toss in that we, we do have other components that do other kind of, uh, I, I won't say they're tangential at all, but there, there are uh, other elements of cybersecurity. So for example, you have the civil division that has uh, you know, mounted their civil cyber fraud initiative, and you have the antitrust division that sometimes gets involved in information sharing issues because of antitrust concerns among, among sharers. So I think that's, I think that's almost the complete laydown of, of the department. Right. Wow. So can we talk more how you actually work across these different agencies and and into the private sector and and personal interest into more international kind of zones? Right. Um, now, it, it's going to I'm going to say something that's so trite, it's not even funny, but um, this is a team sport. You know, I, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I, very much. Uh, yes. 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 <laughs> so, you know, we all operate you know, frequently in our, in our own silos of excellence, but we're also, uh, you know, I think increasingly understanding and learning how collaboration and cooperation, uh, both is effective, uh, and even necessary to achieve our objectives. So, um, you know, we have worked with not only the FBI, but other criminal investigative agencies, including the Secret Service. The Secret Service, which sometimes people are, are surprised to hear the Secret Service mentioned, but frankly, the Secret Service has been a wonderful partner. They, they're responsible for some of the, the the early huge data breach cases, Shadow Crew okay. and Carter Planet back in the 2000s. Um, so we, we work with the Secret Service, we work with uh, some of the, um, the, the military uh, law enforcement uh, entities. In addition, though, uh, we are working increasingly with DHS and CISA, uh, and we actually end up, you know, under presidential policy, we actually end up responding to a number of incidents together. There's, some, there's something um, that was produced in 2016, uh, Presidential Policy Directive 41, which outlines exactly what the federal government's uh, federal instant response policy is for all significant cyber incidents. And under PPD 41, 
um, you know, the the DOJ through the FBI is responsible for what's called threat response. We lead threat response, and uh, CISA, DHS, is responsible for asset response. So, while we're investigating and attempting to attribute the source of a of an attack and you know, ideally hold those responsible um, for the act, uh, we have CISA working in a coordinated fashion alongside us doing those things that are about mitigation right. and remediation um, that have to happen at the same time. Uh, you know, we're also increasingly working with uh, intelligence community components. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's funny, after I've, I've been around a very long time, uh, when I started practicing, like, you know, dinosaurs roam the earth, we resolved <laughs> conflict through, 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 through mortal combat. Right, um, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, back post 9-11, there was sort of this model that was introduced, which was sort of the all tools approach that you used whatever tools were available to deal with the terrorist threat. There is an analog that I think is that that exists here in, in cyber with the all tools approach where um, in the federal government, it, you know, law enforcement tools or uh, the authorities that that Homeland Security has or the IC's you know, tools and capabilities. The idea of, of marshalling those so that we can uh, deal with what you know whether it's an international ransomware group or a nation state actor that's um in networks for counterintelligence purposes uh you know it's it's an effort to try to to pull all of that together now on the private sector um you asked how we work with the, the private sector there is a tremendous amount of outreach that's happening uh involving the private sector uh, again, going to that team sport uh, you know, ethos, um, but it, it's it's important not only because they're the victims, but they're often the first responders, right? right? So we came to the point where, you know, I guess closure on the, on the point years ago that we are not going to be the first call that most victims make after a cyber incident. Um, that calls often going to go to a cyber incident response firm. Um, you know, there's going to be an attempt to figure out the, the the nature and scope of the incident and whether there are other uh, obligations that 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 victim has legally, or policy-wise. And so, you know, our work with the private sector is also focused on figuring out how we better coordinate with with those efforts that are going to have to happen. At the same time, we're trying to investigate, you know, an incident. Um, yeah, and you know, ideally, ideally, and we encourage this all the time. Industry and companies are forging a relationship with law enforcement well in advance of the bad day that 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 could occur, and that's really important for information sharing. The other thing that we're we're going to be talking exactly. about. <laughs> So you're just preempting my questions. Oh. <laughs> hey, Excellent. I appreciate it. Leading me along for once. This is awesome. Love it. <laughs> so, so we kind of know the landscape of government, where the JOD sits, you know, sorry, Department of Justice sits within that landscape. The people that you work with, both internal to the government, military and um, enterprise and that sort of thing. The question is, how do you share information right right so like what's what's the state of that because information you know is very useful and can be very powerful to perhaps right. stop some problems coming along 
Right. Yes. So as I mentioned, you know, information sharing is sort of a, a linchpin in, in prevention of, of, of cyber incidents. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny, Rachel, when you mentioned you love this topic, it, it's funny because information sharing, I would say, is about it's about as sexy as, se- as seatbelts, right? I mean, it's, it's a very topic. useful. <laughs> very, and, That's and, very and, useful. And very useful. And, and, and yet it's an evergreen topic. Right. It's it, like if you go to any cybersecurity conference, there's one, two panels on information sharing. Yes. If you ask cybersecurity leaders, what's the biggest challenge you have in cybersecurity? In the top five, information sharing pops up almost in, invariably. Um, uh, this isn't too much of a tangent. I, I'll tell you that uh, I was going through my files a few months ago and I came across a document that uh, that identified what were the challenges with cyber threat intelligence sharing. And it identified you know, concerns about the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA disclosures, mm-hmm. um, antitrust concerns, um, legal liability for sharing, yeah. um, some classification issues, trust with law enforcement. Um, and and that, that document, that memo, was written by Assistant Attorney General James Robinson to Attorney General Janet Reno in 1999. Wow. Wow. Okay. Now these are the same, the same issues that people mention when you, yes. you talk about about um, about challenges to information sharing these days. Um, and it, you know, I, uh, I mean, to answer your question to start off with, like, what are the the mechanisms or the infrastructure? So w- we do not have you know a single portal from which. You know, you go to and the FBI right. is, is writing all those cyber threat indicators right there. We are, though, doing a lot of, you know, on the ground retail sharing through things like InfraGuard, uh, the FBI's program across the country with critical infrastructure um, companies. Uh, they have you know, basically one in every every regional office. Um, and I think what, one thing that can't be lost here is a big component of information sharing is trust. Right. So, so some Agreed. of the most effective information sharing, um, you know, efforts we know happen in these communities of interest where people know who they're sharing with, yes. they know how that information is going to be used, they know where the information is going, and um, you know, one of the challenges for the government is trying to do that at scale. Right. You know, having people send things cold to a portal or something is is not an easy way of, of, of doing this. So a lot of this is, is building information, um, sharing trust through, you know, through various outreach efforts. And there's, there's been a, a lot of that. Now, the ability to beat back some of the, you know, I mentioned that memo of, of, of 30 years ago, some of the things that, that seem to chill information sharing, um, you know, is, has been very difficult because some of the misperceptions have, you know, great longevity for whatever reason. Um, they're, they're kind of hard to to knock down, um, but 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 we're we're trying through these engagements. And in terms of how things change, because you've been in this area a long time. Are things, I'm is old, is what easier? you're saying. You're saying I'm very old. Yeah, I'm <laughs> saying I'm old. <laughs> and, um, and I'm I'm saying that um, the, at least the tools that you have 
to be able to use them. And her dog is barking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The tools that you have have certainly changed and in some ways should be make it easier to share information. But but what what are you seeing? Because you're saying effectively a memo that you read that was from 30 years ago. Actually, the problems are still there and it's the same issue. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's funny because we're I mean, I think you could argue that we're at this interesting inflection point. There is, so let me first distinguish between um, information sharing and and instant reporting, right? So information sharing is, as I think of it canonically, is this thing that happens before the bad thing happens to prevent, you know, other bad things from happening. And, you know, instant reporting is after the incident happens, some reporting to some government agency, for example. Uh, the, the inflection point I mentioned is one, there has been a significant change, I think, in the appetite of various uh, independent regulatory agencies to mandate uh, things like instant reporting. And so we've seen this in the last three years, this, this proliferation of mandatory instant report- reporting requirements you know in you see it in the the financial sector with uh the occ fdic um you know a rule that came out in 2021 november requiring reporting uh you see it in the sec rule that was published just in july for all publicly traded organizations and you see it in in the cyber uh instant reporting for critical infrastructure um act that was passed in march of 2022 and this this is relatively new, and I guess I I think it personally I think it probably is a product of 2021, which was just a rough year in cybersecurity, right? It, yeah. It's started with Solar Winds um, in oh, yeah. January. You had Hafnium uh, next month. Uh, then you know May you you have Colonial Pipeline followed by JBS, and on and on and on. Ransomware really taking um, taking hold, and I think. It, Against that backdrop, there has been, um, as I mentioned, a greater appetite for independent federal regulatory agencies to um, to require certain things of, of of companies. At the same time, alongside that, you have the voluntary information sharing programs, and uh, I mean, there, uh, there, there's one thing, one tool I'd like to flag in, in particular in that in that lane. Uh, back in 2015 something was passed called the Cyber Security Information Sharing Act of 2015, or CISA 2015, as we call it for short. Um, and th- this was, you know, in many ways, a landmark piece of legislation. It was the first piece of federal affirmative authority for companies to share information. You know, there, there are complaints, if you talk to the lawyers of many companies, they'd say, you know, information sharing is hard because there are these these statutes that prohibit us from sharing, and we have to find our way into exceptions okay. to those prohibitions. It would be much happier if there was like affirmative authority to do this. So actually, Congress uh, in 2015, December of that year, passed a bill. And I, I, I'm, I, it's, it's a source of great frustration for me because it's a bill that's been in existence since 2015. We've been <laughs> talking about 2015. and. Invariably, whenever we talk to GCs of large companies or uh, to, to CISOs, the reaction is, there's a what now? 
there's a law that allows me to do to do what? I mean, it somehow, <laughs> somehow, it just isn't isn't getting out there that there's this law, and and this law is is actually a very powerful tool. It provides affirmative authority for uh, any private entity to share with any other private entity or non-private entity, including the government, um, for a cybersecurity purpose. Is defined by statute, but it pretty much is what you would assume a cybersecurity purpose is. Um, certain types of information called cyber threat indicators uh, or defensive measures, and those are defined by statute, but they're they're defined broadly to capture the sort of technical information that you would expect to be shareable uh, for the you know the, the identification of, of cyber threats. Um, and it authorizes this, notwithstanding any other provision of law. Now, notwithstanding any other provision of law is like the tactical nuclear strike of, you know, in legal language, that means that any conflicting law is overridden. So, you know, it was an attempt to get the lawyers out of the way to simplify information sharing. So there's no issue about whether it's content or non-content or whether you're doing it for your, to protect your rights of property or uh, it, whether it's an interception of, of communications. It's, sharing of, of this information of there the thing i'd flag is you know this is a post snowden law so there were uh definitely an effort by congress to build in some some privacy protections those those protections include that there be you know it, it's for cybersecurity purposes and not for intelligence gathering purposes for example defined by statute um you're not allowed to share just any information it's not about sharing you know personal emails of every person it has to be a cyber threat indicator that's you know linked to some cybersecurity threat um, and there is a requirement that, that before you share information that you know to be at the time of sharing, personal information that identifies a specific person or belongs to a specific person be removed. And while at first blush that may sound uh, like it could be onerous, uh, you know, they took steps to, to make it less onerous. So, for example, one, you have to know at the time of sharing that it's a personal, a personal information that identifies a specific person or, or belongs to a specific person. And that's different than PII. That's different than personally identifiable information, which is information that's linked or linkable mm. to a person. So it, it's intended to be something that's, 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 you know, not as restrictive, um, you know, and it's information that can be removed manually or, or, uh, you know, through automated means. And if you're dealing with the type of cyber threat information we're talking about, it really is unlikely to include a lot of the personal information that that you know people are concerned about. So an IP address is a perfect example of something that would be shareable under this under this authority. Um, and I I have to say, just like the steak knives, but wait, there's more. Not only does it provide affirmative authority, it also provides, in addition, if you share in accordance with it protection against antitrust liability, mm -hmm. against FOIA disclosure requirements, oh, wow. protection, protection from regulatory use of the information that's provided, which is increasingly a concern for companies. Um, you know, and all of this is in this law that uh, that is not used in our view uh, nearly enough. And it's something we like to flag for our, our industry partners so that they understand that this is their the other thing I'll flag about it um, is it sunsets in 2015 and uh, 2025. I'm sorry. So it was authorized for 10 years 
And so, you know, we're concerned that we may lose this authority in, you know, a couple of years if if it's not reauthorized. It's interesting. So it's effectively kind of the whistleblower kind of protection of of cyber. It, it to me, that's the way it sounds because uh-huh. you can actually raise it with you know out getting thrown under a bus. Yes, which, that's is, the which is a sport. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, I I have to admit. I read the report, Harmonization of Cyber Incident Reporting to the Federal Government. And when I read all the input that your teams had had from businesses, when you said, yeah, it became really popular to make people report on incidents when they happen and that sort of thing. When I read through that, I was like, oh, my God, that that could actually kill someone. (laughs) I mean, I was just kind of like the sheer number of overlap of things that you would have to do if things go wrong. That just adds to the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, yes. I mean, I think you know when when the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act, uh, you know, was was passed in March of 2022, there was, I think, a recognition on the Hill that there had been this proliferation of of reporting requirements, um, and that there was a concern about overlap and duplication. And so they created this um, uh, Cyber Incident Reporting Council, the CERC, which is uh, headed by DHS, to try to start wrestling with that issue. And I, I can tell you, it's an it's an active group. Uh, there is very good participation at very high levels of all agencies uh, that are relevant, including uh, the federal independent agencies. So you have you know the SEC and the FCC and the FTC engaged, but. It, there's also, I think, um, you know, a, a, another effort, uh, the uh, see Cyber Regulators Forum, in which the federal regulators are also talking about how to better harmonize their rules to, you know, avoid duplication and, and overlap. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I, I can I can tell you that there is very real attention being put to this, uh, and very real plans to try to figure out how to 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 simplify this um i i will say that you know there is i I think cyber incident reporting is important uh there is um oh god it's it's important for a number of reasons it's funny there's this one story i love that um involved a statistician who was at columbia i believe during world war ii uh, who studied how, oddly enough, um, people who were studying the downing of World War II aircraft decided to improve the, the armor on those aircraft. And what, what they were doing was they were looking at the planes that, that came back, that made a successful you know, mission, and looking at where those planes were hit. And you, know, you can't armor everywhere on a plane. And so you would think just, I mean, they thought, like many people thought, that that means we should put more armor in those places. Well, what the statistician, I, I, I don't remember, was it, was it Abraham Ward? I think it was maybe. But what he found was, no, that's absolutely wrong. And it's something called survivor bias. What, what should mm-hmm. be happening instead? These are the planes that made it back, right? right. And they made it black, back with this damage. Exactly. Which, yeah. which means that, like, 
you, ideally you'd be looking at the planes that went down and well, looking exactly. at what, <laughs> what happened. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so there's, you could argue there's a similar thing here that there's a, you know, you want to hear from the people who had a cyber incident, exactly. who had the incident, who didn't stop it and, you know, were victimized by it so that you understand, okay, what, what are the bad guys doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you do get from, from, you know, incident reporting that you don't necessarily get from from other types of reporting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's there's value to this. I do think it's important to figure out how to do this in a way that's not unduly burdensome to, right. yeah. to right. the victim. That's that's a very good term because yes. what I read, I was like burdensome. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and, and and I do like so the there are eight recommendations in the report and three legislative changes that they're suggesting. And I and I actually think it could make it it's not that it's going to be fun anyway when you have a cyber incident, but it at least will make it more contained. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is at least our goal, um, stated many times, not to re-victimize a victim in a cyber. Yes. No. Oh, exactly. And that's yeah. that's what I recognized through reading. I was like, wow. Okay. Like people are really dealing with um, a lot when something like this happens. It's not just the business itself that's suffering or or the government agency or whatever. It's not just that that's suffering. It's the wider, what do you have to do regulatorily in order to actually yep. be correct? Right. That's right. Yeah. In fact, that's, I mean, that is one of the largest concerns we hear in outreach to, to industry about, um, you know, there are concerns about uh, the regulatory impact of, of an incident and, and so one thing that you know we have communicated to victims because we get asked this all the time. They ask, so if I report something, is that information being handed right over to regulators? And our answer is no. Uh, and you know, and this is not in any way criticizing you know other agencies with different yeah. missions. I mean, you have you know the FTC protects consumers, and that's that is their mission. The SEC right. uh, protects shareholders and market participants, and that's what they should be doing. Our job is to protect victims, right. and and so, you know, and we've worked with the FTC and the, the and the SEC and other right. agencies, and they, they, I think there's a respect for that, understanding that if we just sure. handed information over to them, our ability to work with victims would be hugely impacted in a negative oh, way, obviously. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we do not, as a matter of course, like hand over investigative information to any agency, including including regulators. Excellent. Now. I'm conscious of time and I always want to fit in my favorite question. So, um, and so if you're, if you're happy to to entertain me, um, I love to hear people's origin stories because I, I have yet to not be entertained and impressed by (laughs) what people talk about on where they started and how they ended up where they are and the path they took. So would you be happy to tell us your origin story? I would be happy to, but uh, be prepared to be disappointed. Um, oh. <laughs> no, I, 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 I am, I am a, a, a rather simple person. Uh, I, 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 for example, went in law school. I realized by the end of the first, you know, semester, that I had only one interest in law, and that was criminal law. Um, oh. And because I had a certain bent, I was interested in, you know, understanding exactly what happened um, 
and what we could do to prevent that that from happening again, um, which kind of veered me towards the government prosecutor. Sure. I don't, mm-hmm. quite frankly, most of my friends are defense attorneys, but, um, <laughs> but still, I ended up there. Um, so uh, when I got out of law school, the first thing I did was I applied to the Department of Justice. Uh, they uh, have a program where they take people directly out of law school, and I was fortunate enough to get in. Um, and I've I've been here ever since. So oh. I've you know thirty two years. I've been at the department. I've I've been in different capacities. Sure. I've been uh, I started in the terrorism and violent crime section. Um, I then worked to the, uh, went to the inspector general's mm-hmm. office for some time as special investigative counsel. Uh, I went to the national security division. Um, as a senior counselor, um, I've been an associate deputy attorney general responsible for cyber policy for the department. So I've I've been able to do a number of different things at the department, which is, let me say, a wonderful place to work um, for a lawyer in particular. Uh, it's an agency of lawyers, and in that way, it's it's kind of unique and odd. This topic, though, uh, you know, cyber and cybersecurity really is uh, just one that, uh, I mean, you could... You could work a lifetime and still feel like you have uh, just mountains to learn. Yes. Uh, I find, I mean, I, I feel unfortunate because I, I work with both people in my office who are, are the smartest people I've, I've ever encountered and have the opportunity to work with people in industry and other places who bring important different perspectives to issues uh, and, you know, allow me to learn. Um, and figure out how we can deal with different problems in different ways. Um, so I, this is th- th- my journey is pretty simple. It's been a a, a straight line, um, you know, by and large. Uh, but it's been a wonderful journey. Excellent. Now, I I also like to hear when people are driven and driven from yes. a young age, just be like, "That's me. Exactly. That's where I'm going. That's what I want." And and. You have to admit, with cybersecurity, everything changes so regularly that yes. you're never going to get yeah. bored. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Uh, yeah, no, that's that. Yes, it it does it does keep keep changing. I mean, for example, I'm not sure you know, if you went back. I mean, go back three years. Ransomware certainly was a thing. It really started mm-hmm. in around 2014, but what we've seen over the last few years, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's a threat that there's just a sea change in the nature of uh, the the threat and its impact on on systems, on businesses. Um, and you just don't know when that's happening. Obviously, we're at the moment where there's the advent of, of artificial intelligence, as we were talking about. Uh, 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 to make them so, even more effective. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, right, and we'll see how that affects you know, phishing attacks and things like that. And how well, can phishing attacks that. never used to happen much in the Middle East. But and now AI right, enables yeah. translation to be very accurate. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Right. Like right. attacks have gone up something ridiculous, like like a thousand or a few thousand percent. It's crazy. But this is this is the wonderful thing about this area. I mean, it's it's many of the things you deal with are dual use tools, right? They can be mm-hmm. used for good or for evil. Exactly. Uh, and you know, trying to figure out how you cabin that and how you investigate that, that's you know, that's a challenge that I'm I'm happy the people who are working on it here are working on it because I think they're very smart, uh, very balanced and have a a, a a real interest in trying to figure out how to make it uh sensible. So yeah. 
Well, in 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 a prosecutorial, prosecu- prosecu- <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say, prosecutorial. But being on the, the prosecutor side though, right, criminal, you still you have to understand the mind of the criminal as well, right? I mean, it you you almost have to think like a criminal, borderline be a criminal, and then you know how to right fight and prosecute said criminal, uh, which makes it a really interesting world, right? That you're existing in. Um, because there's a lot of creative people there in the criminal world. And and I suspect you all the great minds over the Department of Justice um, are very creative as well. And I would love to be a fly on the wall. Of, of some of your meetings. Just Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'll just, I'll just use that just to, to, to tell this one little story, which is, I mean, an example of that is what we were able to do to Hive a ransomware group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in January of, of this year, we announced that we had actually managed to infiltrate their network, uh, sit on their network, watch them operating, uh, take the decryption keys, for the ransomware that they were uh, mm-hmm. you know, using, um, provided 300 victims who were currently under attack, wow. meaning that they did not pay $130 million of, of ransom they otherwise would have, and also keys to a thousand businesses that um, had been attacked earlier to see if they could use them. Um, and you know that's a product of being, I mean, of getting into the network in the same yes. way they do, uh, and uh, being able to take advantage of that again, all under appropriate legal authorities. Right. With you know, but um, you know, you're absolutely right. We have to sometimes think creatively. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fun conversation. And I, I really information sharing. I think it's a sexy topic. I don't. I don't think it's like seatbelt. So, uh, <laughs> you know, greatly appreciate your insights. And as to our listeners, you know, because it's trying to understand how the government works and and what can be complicated topics and themes, right? And and helping to break that down into kind of snack size bites where you can ah now I see where the pathways go and and how they interact and um and I love that you know Department of Justice focus on the victim. Right. Um, and I thought that was a, a really wonderful statement uh, that people needed to hear as well. You know, you, you do have a safe place uh, to go. And so. thank you so much for uh, for a wonderful conversation. I enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, appreciate so. it to both of you uh, taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. It's all of our listeners out there. Thanks for joining us again this week. And as always, right, Audra, don't forget to smash cur, 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 the subscription <laughs> button so you get a fresh episode every single Tuesday. So until next time, everyone, stay secure. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.